Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, we are, of course, um, marking VE Day. Um, so Alina has invited someone on. She's very excited. Alina, who have we got with us today? I am just a little bit excited. We have Annabelle Venning with us, who is a journalist and historian. She's written for newspapers like The Telegraph, The Times, The Daily Mail. She has also written some great books like Following the Drum, The Lives of Army Wives and Daughters, and her latest book, To War with the Walkers, which is what we'll be talking about today. And I'm really excited to do so. So welcome, Annabelle. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. How is lockdown? So uh, for those that don't know, um, Annabelle is, of course, the powerhouse half of a world war ii couple um in that guy waters is her husband you're not his wife he's your husband let's do it that way round. <laughs> exactly right how's his lawnmower have you had any more dramas with the lawnmower uh lawnmower is <laughs> fortunately broken at the moment which it mainly is actually so um yeah it's quite peaceful <laughs> uh you've sent him out with the dogs so you can have some peace to record this um but but how is it are you getting on each other's nerves uh it's not too bad at the moment actually um he has got his own office which is separate from the house so that is a kind of saving grace um and actually for us it's business as usual really because you know we work from home anyway so mm. we haven't had quite as much adjusting to do as some people but that said uh it would be quite nice to you know dilute each other's company now and then with some other people <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that's why um, you have us today exactly so listen let's i think we should start talking about this book because um i i got my hands on it i love it personally i think it adds a personal touch more complete personal touch these are definitely my favorite kind of podcasts so let's give our listeners an overview of the book and what inspired you to write it uh, so i started off because uh my mother said to me some years ago oh you should talk to your great aunt Ruth about what she did in the war I have a feeling she did something quite interesting uh so I went along and I you know asked her what she was what she did in the war um she was 21 when the war began um no in fact she was she was just 20 when the war began and um she said oh I was a nurse at St Thomas's Hospital in London and so we started talking about that uh, and she was one of those people who didn't over dramatize anything so it only kind of came out in dribs and drabs um what she'd done and how much of the front line she'd been and to start with because as well as being a nurse in St Thomas's at the height of the blitz she was also engaged when the war began and she had this incredible rom- story of romance with a, a chap who was her childhood sweetheart but was right the other side of the world in Borneo and I was just going to write it about them and their romance 
originally and he was um he was involved in SOE, Special Operations Executive in Borneo and, and fought behind Japanese enemy lines in a guerrilla warfare there. And so I thought, oh, there's, you know, it's amazing story, a nurse in the Blitz, a, you know, her sweetheart behind Japanese lines. But then she would reman- mention as she went along, oh, and while I was doing that, my brother Walter was, my grandfather was in Burma fighting and, oh, yes, and my brother Edward was fighting in Italy and Peter, my other brother, was a prisoner of war. Uh, with the Japanese and, and then Harold was in St. Thomas's with me and I realised that with all their experiences together it was almost like the World War Two in microcosm through the experiences of one family so then I broadened it out to become you know one family's war. Yeah it's brilliant um let's just set the scene uh, let's start with the first world war um so their father your great-grandfather Arthur was called to serve wasn't he and um, what happened to him and the family? So Arthur, my great-grandfather, was a tea planter in Assam in India, um, and he'd already fought in one war. Um, he were, he and his brother volunteered in the Boer War, um, and in fact his brother was killed and um, Arthur was invalided home. Um, and he went back to tea planting, but in 1913, he and his um, his wife, my gra- great-grandmother Dorothea, they came back to England with their three children, because I think Arthur's health was giving out. He'd had you know, too many bouts of malaria. And they came back to to Britain and they set, they tried to settle down and they had um, three more children, actually. So there were six children altogether. Uh, and so he was back in England just uh, in time for the next war, for the First World War. And he, I think he volunteered, but he was he was 41 by then. Uh, but he served at Ypres um, and then he got invalided home. And he spent the rest of the war sort of organising labour labour battalions and so on, but moving around the country quite a lot. So yeah, so he'd had he'd had two wars by the end of the, second, of the first world war. Tell us about the Walker siblings because there were six of them. What was their life like as children? Well, so they uh, eventually settled in a town called Tiverton in Devon. Um, the youngest of the six, Aunt Ruth, was born in 1919, and I think uh, they moved to Tiverton in about 1922, 1923. Uh, and they lived in this uh, sort of a house on the outskirts of the town, uh, surrounded by fields, more or less. And it was a very four brothers, two sisters. It was a very sort of masculine house. Lots of rugby and cricket being played in the garden, the boys having boxing matches. Um, but it was a very, Ruth described it as a really happy household. They were always really short of cash. They were trying to maintain a, a sort of upper middle class existence, but on not very much money. So, you know, the relations was pitching for the school fees. Um, and Arthur had a tiny army pension and he'd try and make ends meet by chicken farming and growing fruit that he sold at the market. And my great-grandmother, Dorothea, was very much the boss and she kind of had hold of the purse strings and she made most of the decisions. So she was quite firm and he, Arthur, was much more kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, bought the treats, went to the pub, liked a game of darts and Dorothea was a bit more about keeping up appearances. Um, But it was, yeah, it was a a fun-filled household and I think... um, you know, all the boys, the four boys who were at Blundell's school, which is in Tiverton, um, they were a real magnet. So, you know, they have lots of friends back home and there, and there was, you know, a lot of fun and games going on. I think Ruth got a lot of um, teasing from her older brothers. You know, she was always being tied to a tree and having rubber tipped arrows 
fired at her or being made to be a cricket post for their games and all sorts. But it was, um, yeah, I think it was a sort of quite robust but quite happy household. What about as young adults just before the Second World War breaks out? Uh, so by the time the Second World War broke out, most of them had left home. So Edward was the first to go. He was the eldest. And he went to Sandhurst in 1928 to become an officer. And then he joined the Indian Army. So he went to India. And then Walter, my grandfather, was the, the second oldest brother. Um, he was supposed to go into business. Dorothea decided that he should go into business, but he wasn't having any of it. He wanted to join the Army too. So he went to Sandhurst, joined the Gurkhas, and also went to India. And then Peter went to India to become a tea planter, just like his father. Um, and then so breaking out of the, of the military mould again, Harold um, wanted to be a doctor. So he went to London and studied at St. Thomas's Hospital as a medical student. And then the girls, obviously, they were being girls, they were just expected to get married. Um, and B, the, who was the, the oldest sister, the second oldest of the six, was very pretty, glamorous, kind of bubbly. And she'd gone out to Hong Kong when Edward was posted there in um, 1934. And she got engaged three times, but broken off each engagement. So by the time the Second World War came along, she was single, um, but she was living in London. She was working as a, as a model and sort of shop assistant uh, for Norman Hartnell. Um, and Ruth was engaged to um, her sort of childhood sweetheart, who was a friend of her, her older brothers, this chap called John Fisher. And they got engaged. And the idea was they'd get married when Ruth was um, 21 and, and she'd go out to, to Borneo, where he was a sort of civil servant. Um, but of course, when the war broke out, she realised that she wasn't going to be able to get married in 1940. And so she went, decided she wanted to do do her bit and she went to St Thomas's to train as a nurse so they were very much scattered at the outset of the war um you know for my my great grandparents they had they had three children in London Ruth B and Harold and then three in India Walter Edward and Peter so obviously the second world war breaks out you just mentioned where all the siblings were Let's talk about their individual experiences. I mean, personally, I think each one of them deserves their own podcast because we could be here for hours. <laughs> I think I don't think Alex would disagree here, sitting here for a few hours <laughs> listening to various different experiences. But Edward, at the moment, he was in India. He ends up fighting in Italy. But can you tell us how he ends up going from India to Italy? Well, of course, the Indian Army fought um, in pretty much every theatre of the war. So, um, you know, they fought in, in Malaya, in Burma. Um, and in Europe and, uh, Edward was mad, you know, desperate as the war went on. He was really frustrated as a, you know, having been a professional soldier since 1929, he really wanted to be in the fighting and he kept being given various kind of desk jobs as he saw them or training jobs around India and he kept kind of trying to get involved in the actual war. Um, but it wasn't until 1944 um, and which by which time the Italy campaign was already underway that they sent uh, more troops to Italy and his regiment first he was upon, given command of a regiment first Jaipur infantry and so he was sent um, to lead that uh, that battalion in Italy and he was sent to 
the Gothic lion, which is one of the lions of defence in northern Italy. And he he arrived there in September 1944 um, and in time for the worst winter they'd had, you know, in living memory in Italy. And these poor um, troops from Jaipur were stuck in the snowy mountains. Um, And I've seen a little bit of film from um, a sort of army um, filming unit. And, you know, these poor guys are trying to survive in the snow. Uh, And they don't look like they've even been given the right winter uniforms. And it's obviously absolutely freezing. So he had... um, he had a pretty tough time, but I think he, he, you know, acquitted himself very well. He was um, given the uh, distinguished service order. So he'd done a, he did a good job leading his, leading his man, but it was, you know, it was very intensive fighting and reading the war diaries, you know, he's, he's constantly being shelled and, you know, mortars landing outside his dugout all the time. And it, you know, it was, it was pretty brutal stuff. And, and he, um, continued there till May 1940, uh, 1945 when, you know, when the surrender happened. So he was, he was very much in the thick of it. So was Ruth. You've already mentioned the Blitz. So she's the youngest of the siblings and she ends up right in the middle of this devastation, doesn't she? What was her experience? Yeah, that's the extraordinary thing. So, you know, she had three brothers in the army by that. Uh, well, I think Peter was about to join the Indian army as, as a volunteer. Uh, so, but, you know, out of all the six of them, she was the first to kind of, um, you know, be right, right in the middle of it. Uh, so she, um, she was in St. Thomas's in September 1940 when the Blitz began. And it was the second night of the Blitz. So the first night, They'd kind of seen what happened to the East End. They'd watched the bombing of the East End from St. Thomas's. They could see along the river, you know, the, the whole sky lit up by flames. And so having been quite blase about air raid sirens up till then, uh, Ruth told me that, you know, ha- you know, actually that night I decided I would take the advice and go down to the basement of the nurse's home. And they all kind of took up their bedding and went down into the basement and she said, I just couldn't sleep. You know, she heard the bombers going over this constant drone of, of Luftwaffe bombers. And at 2.30 in the morning, she was still awake and this, you know, massive explosion happened. Um, and that was the hospital being hit and a bomb had hit the nurse's home and the sort of top floors of it crumpled down and everyone in the basement was sort of entombed i mean miraculously um they also there were lots of nurses in the basement and they all managed to clamber out but ruth was stuck in a kind of you know she described it what felt like a tomb uh, she wasn't hurt but she couldn't really see a way out and it was completely dark and she stayed she lay down there thinking that she was going to die because she she thought she smelled burning in fact it was the explosive from the bomb uh, but it was a long time she felt uh, before she heard voices saying Any, anyone there anyone there and it was teams of medical students who were going around looking for survivors and helping the nurses clamber out of the ruins and she shouted back I'm here I'm here help help and they shone a torch down and they found her but they couldn't get her out because she was sort of such a long way down with in all the rubble and so they had to go and get a ladder and then another ladder and tie two ladders together and one of the people at the top of the ladder sort of encouraging her to to get out and to climb up the ladder was actually her brother Harold so when she finally 
got to the top of the ladder absolutely caked in dust um he was he was there to kind of give her a pat on the back and and say there there and she told me that um as she came out you know she came out into the night and the and the bombers were still going overhead and all these tiny little lights like fireflies were floating around the sky and it was feathers from all the pillars that had burst in the explosion and caught light and she said it was really beautiful um sort of incongruous sight but she got taken um for a cup of tea inevitably or i think it might have been cocoa actually um and a sandwich and and she then went to see matron who said oh you know are you all right um she said well yes i, I am i'm fine and she said, well look just brush your hair dust yourself down um have one of my uniforms and get back on duty and so she did and she was adamant that that was the best thing that that she could have done rather than sort of you know rest and and be in a state of shock she just went straight back on duty before we move on to harold i just wanted to ask could you tell our listeners about the moment with the soldier and the slippers oh yes so that was um in the aftermath of um dunkirk so at that point uh ruth was at a hospital called Park Pruitt, just outside Basingstoke, uh, because St Thomas's and all the London hospitals had tried to send as many of their um, departments as they could out out of the city. So they'd taken over um, country hospitals and, uh, in this case, a um, mental hospital and put as many of their patients and staff um, there as they could. So she was at this hospital when... Um, the convoy of wounded from Dunkirk uh, started arriving and she was put on night nurse duty one night and she was sitting at her desk uh, making notes and she became aware that one of the patients was standing over her and she looked up and there was this chap who had you know been rescued from Dunkirk uh, and he was a he was walking wounded and he said to her always sort of conversationally and he was holding a cutthroat razor because they'd given them their own, the ones who could shave themselves were allowed to shave themselves. And so he was holding his, his cutthroat razor and he held it towards her and he said, I'm going to cut your throat. And so she didn't know what to say. She was the only person on the ward. It was totally dark. Um, and the bell to summon help was out of reach. And so she knew she had to keep him talking. And she said to him, she looked down and saw that he had bare feet and she said to him, but Major Jones, you haven't got your slippers on. And he looked down and he said, oh, nor I, nor I haven't. And he walked back to his bed to get his slippers. And at that point, Ruth was able to reach for the bell and ring the bell and help came. And um, poor old Major Jones was, was dealt with. Um, and I think after that, they made sure that, that bells were in reach and that people weren't left on the wards on their own. And people didn't, the patients didn't have their cutthroat razors to hand. But it was, you know, she, she told the story to illustrate how, incredibly traumatised some of those people were after what they'd been through at Dunkirk. You mentioned previously that it wasn't just Ruth who was working in hospitals, also Harold. What happened to him? So Harold, um, yeah, he was a medical student um, and he also dealt with the injured from Dunkirk but just by coincidence he was back at St Thomas's um, itself in the Blitz and so having helped uh, to get Ruth out of the rubble um, the night that the nurse's home was bombed and in fact six people were killed that night so you know Ruth was lucky um, and St Thomas was bombed again a few days later because it was right on the river it was a really obvious uh, target for for the Luftwaffe bombers it was right across from the House of Parliament so um, there was another bomb 
a few nights later. And then a week after Ruth was rescued, Harold had been taking part in an operation in the basement. They'd moved the operating theatre to the basement and he'd been assisting an operation. And he was walking down the corridor talking to a great friend of his called um, Peter Spilsbury. And they were heading off to, to the bar, I think. Um, and then, he, as, he, as he put it, then I knew nothing else after that. He woke up a week later. Um, so a, another huge bomb had hit the hospital and more or less cut it in two. And Peter Spilsbury, who had been walking next to Harold, was killed outright. Uh, Ruth said that his head was taken off um, because there was flying rubble, bits of metal, you know, masonry and so on, um, flying everywhere. And Harold was hit in the head and he was then buried under the rubble. And the hospital, the whole hospital was in complete uh, disarray. And there was, you know, gas had escaped. The dispensary, all the spirits in the dispensary had caught lights. There was fire. The fire brigade came and they were trying to put the fire out. But actually the water made some of it, some of the spirits react. So that made it worse. Um, and it wasn't for quite some time that people realised that Harold was among those who were missing. And so some of his colleagues crawled through the rubble and it was incredibly dangerous because the bombing was still going on over their heads and they couldn't use a torch. Every time a bomber came over, they had to turn the torch off. Um, And they finally reached Harold and there were uh, several of the people under the rubble. There were, there were casualties that night, but Harold, um, they found a pulse and they very, very carefully managed to extract him from the rubble. Um, they got him on a stretcher and they, you know, it was, it, they really, um, the people who rescued him, um, were given a, a George medal for their bravery, um, because they, you know, each, each step they took forward, they risked being buried themselves as the rubble moved. Uh, but anyway, they, they got him out and they got him, um, to a hospital, eventually, uh, a hospital near Woking where there was a very, um, senior neurologist and, Ruth went to visit him in hospital and the neurologist said, look, he's in a coma. Um, his skull is fractured. The best that we can hope for if he does wake up is that he's going to be brain damaged. So in your shoes, I would hope that he doesn't survive. Um, and Ruth being Ruth was quite optimistic. And she said, look, where there's, where there's life, there's hope. And so she just told her, her parents that you know Harold had been injured but he was going to be all right and amazingly after a week in a coma he woke up and he was absolutely fine he had one um episode of epilepsy and some pretty serious headaches but um uh, he he made a full recovery um after six months of recuperation he was back at work back on the wards so he was you know extraordinarily lucky um, especially having had his best friend killed right next to him. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's insane. Um, what did B during, do during the war? Well, B was um, different because um, she she didn't sort of serve in the conventional way like um, the rest of them. So when the war broke out, she was still working as a as a model. Um, but she, I I really struggled to find out what she did. Um, somebody said she'd worked. At, somebody in the family said that uh, they thought she'd worked at Bletchley Park. Uh, so I got very excited and I found a Beatrice Walker had been at Bletchley but actually it wasn't it wasn't my Beatrice Walker um so I discovered that in fact she had worked she ended up at the air ministry um I'm not entirely sure what she did there whether she was it sounds like she was some kind of clerk or secretary um but she it was at the air ministry that she met um the man who became her husband so um, that was one of the sort of happy episodes of the war. She fell in love with this with this chap who was called Gaddis Plum. Um, it's a great name, and he <laughs> came from New Jersey. <laughs> Such an American so name, isn't Congress. it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was a millionaire from New Jersey, um, and he'd come over. He actually already fought in the First World War for Britain. He'd come over quite and um, joined the Royal Flying Corps because he hadn't managed to get into the American Air Force. Um, and then he'd gone back and, you know, run the family business. And then in 1940, you know, long, long before America joined the war, he cabled, he telegrammed his um, friends in London. And he said, I'm coming back to help with the job we evidently failed to finish before. Um, and so he came back to rejoin the RAF, but they didn't want him as a pilot because he was he was in his 40s and he was quite deaf. Um, his, his hearing wasn't perfect. So they employed him at the air ministry, um, in a, in a kind of, in a desk role. Um, and he was something to do with procurement. I think, um, having been in business, he was, he had great contacts and it was there that he met B and they got married in July 1942 and they got married at the Royal Chapel of the Savoy, which is this beautiful, tiny chapel well actually it's just a a really exquisite chapel um just near the savoy um and but the the sort of poignant thing about that is that in the wedding photos there's so many people missing obviously walter and edward are in india and peter's not there so it was only um ruth and harold out out of the six of them that could be there but i guess that was that was the way for many wartime weddings peter's experience was um, probably the most tragic. I had a quite a hard time reading through his <clears throat> wartime experience. He was in Singapore when it fell. What happened to him? Yeah, so Peter was incredibly unlucky in many ways. So, um, you know, with two older brothers already in the army, he obviously felt that he should join. So he um, he left his tea planting job. We, he'd, he'd had the most... Um, happy years of his life as a tea plant. He absolutely loved it. Um, 
And, but he, you know, he knew that he had to do the right thing, which was to volunteer. So he joined the Indian Army and he joined the same regiment that Edward had been in originally, um, the First States Punjabs. Uh, so he wanted, you know, he wanted to fight alongside his older brother. Uh, but, uh, you know, as these things go, he was, as soon as he finished his training, he was sent to join the Punjabs in Malaya. But within the same month, Edward had been sent back to India to do some other role. So, in fact, Peter never got to be with his older brother. He never got, you know, to have his brother look out for him, as I think he'd been hoping. Uh, And he and his regiment were right in the forefront of the fighting uh, when the Japanese attacked, uh, invaded Malaya in December 1941. So at the same time as Pearl Harbor, within hours, they'd also attacked Hong Kong and they'd invaded Malaya and Peter was um, one of those poor guys uh, in the Malaya campaign who had to face the onslaught of the Japanese army uh, and you know they were massively under resourced they they had you know, the wrong weapons not enough ammunition they didn't have any air power you know they were fighting effectively with both hands tied behind their backs and a lot of them like Peter had only just joined there were a lot of raw recruits and so when in you know, reading the accounts of the japanese attack it, it you know it's it's just such brutal such vicious fighting and you know you can imagine the horror of that if you've never never been in the army before to be faced with this you know terrible onslaught and so peter um fought all the way down malaya so six weeks of absolutely brutal fighting um you know being strafed from the air and being attacked from all sides and running out of of everything including food and water but miraculously he was in fact the only officer who stayed the whole way with the battalion all the way down to singapore and he was in singapore when um when it all when it all finished when the british um surrendered on the 15th of February 1942 and he became a prisoner of war along with um, I think 130,000 others and they were marched off you know very humiliatingly through Singapore marched into barracks and and they became prisoners of the Japanese for the next three and a half years which was the worst three and a half years of his life. Wow Um, your family has a motto can you tell us what it is and how it helped Peter survive the Japanese POW camp? Yeah, so the family motto was um, nil desperandum, never despair. And Peter um, said that you know when when he would talk, he didn't like to talk very much about his time in the camps. Um, it was you know a, a really horrific time for all of them. Uh, but when he did talk about it, he said you know it was a miracle I survived. There be there were times where he was given up for dead uh, when he became seriously ill. Um, and you know, there are times that he was beaten, he was tortured, and all the time, of course, they were all suffering ter- terrible diseases and semi-starvation. And they were made to to build this railway for the Japanese, which became known as the Death Railway because so many of them died. Um, but every time he felt, oh, I can't go on, I'm going to die, he would say to himself, the motto, nil desperandum, never despair, never give up. And he would somehow keep going. And there was another thing that kept him going. He, well, obviously he, he desperately wanted to see his family again. He and Arthur, his father, were very, very close. So he was, he was sort of determined to, to get home and see Arthur. Um, but he was also kind of buoyed by the fact that before the war, before he'd left for Malaya, 
he'd met um, a holy man who had um, who'd said to him, who t- told his fortune, and he'd said to Peter, um, "I can see this is sort of before the war in the East began. It's like I can see that you're going to go through a terrible time with a lot of suffering. It's going to be a very dark tunnel, but I can see light at the end of it. You will survive." And so Peter really clung to this, and he he felt that he was fated to survive, and he felt he you know he felt that having that mindset definitely helped him obviously luck comes into it a lot as well but I think this absolute determination and will to survive um really really helped him in you know those really dark times it's really difficult listening to what happened I mean the Japanese were incredibly brutal um yeah the, the, the brutality I mean when I was reading it um in in people's memoirs and and what Peter told his wife and his children as I say he didn't like talking about it but he had scars all over his back there wasn't an inch on his back without the scar from where he'd been beaten or prodded by bayonets um and his his health really suffered Uh, you know he had terrible um intestinal problems from being on a effectively a starvation diet for three and a half years uh, and he also suffered nightmares every single night for the rest of his life. You know, he'd remember the beatings and, and he'd thrash out in his sleep. And in fact, his, his second wife was quite funny about it. He said, she said, you know, I, to start with, we shared a bed, but he thrashed out in his sleep and, you know, gave me a black eye thinking that I was a Japanese guard. And so then we had separate bedrooms. And then in the end, you know, he, he, uh, he sadly, his, his nightmares were so bad they had to sleep on separate floors because, you know, he went, he he would shout out in the night so yeah it was it was awful and reading you know reading in the um in the public record office the affidavits uh given by people to the war crime trials after the war where the the very worst of the japanese war criminals from the camps um were tried you know it's just it's just awful what people suffered you know people being burnt alive and crucified and just terrible beatings for, for, for absolutely nothing. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's upsetting to read. Um, and then you, but then you look also at the amazing things that the doctors in those camps did to keep people alive and how, you know, they'd use bits of old tin can and, you know, a rubber tire for a, to make a drip that, to, to get, you know, um, blood transfusions into people and these amazing miracles they wrought. And that's actually quite, you know, a nice counterbalance to the, the sadism and, and, and suffering, you know, to, to read about what some people did to help each other. It's just extraordinary. I don't think you can um, fully understand it until you've seen it either. I know that sounds pretentious, but we, I, I went to the railway last year um, in Thailand and we went down uh, to, yeah. I think, Hellfire Pass. Uh, uh, in the middle of the heat of the day, uh, it was nearly 50 degrees. Um, all we did was walk down into the canyon to look at the section of railway they, they've got laid there, that they've moved there, and walk back up, and we were utterly exhausted. The entire yes. way down and the entire way back, we were molested by anything with wings um, trying to bite us. Um, it was horrific, and we were fully nourished <laughs> yeah. um, and literally only down there for probably half an hour. So the thought of being starved and beaten and working down there 18 hours a day in those conditions, I mean, it was horrendous yeah 
It, yeah, absolutely. Like you say, you do have to go and see it, don't you? And like you, it wasn't until I got there that I appreciated the, you know, the, the sheer horror of it and, and working on that cliff face and, you know, I think quite a lot of them fell to their deaths there. I mean, just to have to go on day after day and, you know, and it's so easy when we talk about the war, we know always in the back of our minds, we know, well, you know, in 1945 it ended, but of course, they didn't have any idea when it would end and, and who would be victorious and whether this would be the rest of their lives as slaves. Can you tell us more about that? Because you actually went to Burma to do your research specifically for the book. Yes. Um, so I wanted to go and see where where Peter had been held, um, the, the camp, some of the camps where he'd been held um, and in Thailand. And then, of course, you know, Burma's right over the border. So I decided I really must go and try and find some of the places where Walter, my grandfather, fought. Um, and I wasn't convinced I was going to be able to find them because he wasn't in the kind of the major battles in Burma. He wasn't in the, um, you know, retaking of, of Mandalay or Rangoon. He was fighting in quite out-of-the-way places. But, um, in fact, uh, I got a guide and a car driver, and we found um, one of the places where he'd uh, fought for a month and talked to some of the villagers about, I mean, they, none of them, none of those villagers had been alive in the Second World War, but they had the kind of oral history handed down to them of, of uh, what it was like. And they were able to point out to me exactly where my grandfather had had his, his headquarters for a month. And then we amazingly managed to find this village where he'd fought um, in May 1945, so after VE Day. Uh, in fact, they'd listened to the um, rep- reports on the wireless of VE Day in the middle of the Burmese jungle, and, you know, as so they were about to go and fight again, and it must have been incredibly incongruous. But he then fought, um, so, so Walter, my grandfather, was by then, he was only 32, but he was the commanding officer of a Gurkha battalion, the 4th 8th Gurkhas, and they were tasked with cutting off the Japanese retreat in this valley at a village called Tongdo. And he sent his men to intercept them. And for he himself was stuck the other side of the ridge um, throughout the battle. But, I mean, he was being mortared. And, in fact, he... <clears throat> He managed, he, he avoided being killed, um, when a mortar fell on his mule, uh, and, uh, he happened to jump over the ditch just as the mortar was falling. So his poor mule was absolutely blown to pieces, but, um, Walter survived. Anyway, I found this village. I didn't think I was going to get there, um, because it wasn't even on the map and we kept having to stop and ask people and it was, quite close to uh, Rakhine State, so quite close to where you're not allowed to go in Burma. Um, anyway, it was, the sun was setting, and I thought, oh, we're not going to be able to find it. And we finally got to this turn-off, and the car that we'd hired was just a saloon car, and the driver was saying, well, look, I, there's no way I can get down there. It was this sort of rocky mountain track. Um, and it was really frustrating because we were just kind of one valley away from seeing this this battlefield that had been so important to my grandfather he, you know even the last month of his life he talked about the battle of Tongdo and the, and the men he'd lost there and then these guys came up these villagers came up with motorbikes and said look jump on we'll take you and so there was this hair rising journey which I 
tried to keep my eyes open, but not always, <laughs> down this rocky, rocky ravine. And we finally got to the bottom of the valley, and this was the village of Tongdor. And it was the most beautiful, beautiful village. Um, looked pretty much as it had done, I should think, in 1945. And, in fact, they said that we, we were the first Westerners that had been there since 1945. Um, but, again, the, the oral tradition of, you know, my, yes, my grandfather told me about when everybody had to flee the village because there was a big battle here and there were a lot of Japanese buried here afterwards. And so we talked to the to the villagers about it and it was amazing to be able to to see it for myself, to having read about the battle from my grandfather's point of view and from several accounts from people who who had fought with him there. Um and to be able to see oh that was the ridge where Lachiman Gurung, one of his soldiers, won a Victoria Cross for fighting off um wave after wave of Japanese attacks, even when his own arm had been blown off, he kept throwing the grenades back. And you know, that was the place where where my grandfather had to send one of his, you know, most um Fav- his favorite one of his favorite officers a guy who he really admired and he had to send him to take this crucial ridge that if they didn't get this ridge then the japanese would completely overrun the valley and 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 they'd be you know massacred um and he had to send this guy who he liked and admired up this ridge knowing that he was probably going to be killed and indeed he was and that was one of the hardest moments of my grandfather's war having to write to this chap mike's mother so to see to see that where it had all taken place and actually to see, you know, to imagine the carnage then of people lying with their stomachs blown open and, you know, being bombed and mortared and then to see it completely peaceful and and, and absolutely beautiful. It was quite, um, it was really moving, but it was quite a sort of restorative moment. And then afterwards we went to, to the Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery at Rangoon and saw the graves of some of the people who'd been killed there and elsewhere in the Burma campaign. And again, that was, that was really moving. So I was really glad I'd been, uh, you know, I didn't think I was a bit um, unsure about going to Burma for, you know, lots of reasons, but I was, I was so glad to have seen it. I've got to say the book is just incredible. It's beautifully written, very well written. And it, just gives you this beautiful connection to this this family of these six siblings who did something completely different throughout the whole war and Annabelle thank you so much that was absolutely brilliant oh well thank you so much I'm really glad that you guys enjoyed the book um I'm I'm yeah I'm really thrilled by it absolutely and you're gonna come join us down the pub at some point aren't you that would be absolutely fantastic brilliant I've, not, I've now got this slightly incongruous thing happening behind me as we're talking my husband decided to take this moment to wash the outside of the house the oh, things the they do for attention yeah he's never once in his life voluntarily cleaned or washed anything before and he's now spraying water all over the window behind me this is like when i go what. on podcasting too long and my cat starts attention seeking by like pouring at me and slapping me with his oh. big clown paw basically guys doing the man equivalent of that isn't he <laughs> I suppose you better go and, yeah, you need to go and feed him or pat him on the head or yeah, I mean with yeah, the cat I tickle his chin maybe that'll work you better try thank you so much Annabelle oh well thank you guys so much it's been really great talking to you and um, 
Um, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about my book. Our regular pole position segment on a Friday morning will return next week with a special episode that commemorates uh, the passing of Alina's grandfather um, and all that he did during World War II for his country. Uh, rejoin us and Annabelle a little bit later on when we will be joined again by Roger Morehouse and Peter Caddick Adams and Luke Daly Groves. And we will all, we'll all be discussing uh, VE Day, what it means, um, why we think you can celebrate it and conversely what the 8th of May brought for people not in Britain and, and why it wasn't a day of celebration for everyone. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com but all of your donations are greatly appreciated uh, and they will help to keep us going in the aftermath of the coronavirus. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.